Have you heard the old saying, you must love yourself before you can love anyone else? People often share that as the ultimate friendship and relationship advice, but they don't provide any guidance on how to love yourself. It just leaves us feeling either defensive, like it was only our fault that our relationships and friendships failed, or it leaves us with more questions and answers. How do I love myself? What are the steps? Where do I get started? That's why I want to invite you to a three-day virtual conference, Love Yourself First, How to Develop Supportive Friendships and Meaningful Relationships. For three days from February 10th to the 12th, join me and five other amazing coaches, experts, and professionals for this empowerment event. At this virtual conference, you'll learn the secrets to loving yourself so that you can create lasting connections that will enrich your life. Tickets are on sale now. If you use my promo code Patterns Special on or before December 16th, you'll receive exclusive access to hidden special tickets. And these tickets are only available with my promo code. So get your tickets sooner rather than later. Also, because we know you'll want to share this love with a friend, if you buy two tickets in a single transaction, you'll receive a 50% discount on the second ticket. That's right, you'll receive half off the second ticket. So if your friendships and relationships are missing the joy, affection, and genuine conversation that you deeply desire, then you need to get your tickets for this three-day Love Yourself First conference. Reserve your space by going to alwaysloveyourselffirst.eventbrite.com and don't forget to use the promo code PATTERNSSPECIAL. Once again, get your tickets at alwaysloveyourselffirst.eventbrite.com and use promo code PATTERNSSPECIAL before December 16th to get your special promo tickets. I'll see you there. Hey, what's going on? My name is Coach Lee Hopkins. My pronouns are he, him, his, and you're listening to the Patterns of Possibility podcast. This is a podcast dedicated to helping you replace harmful patterns with new possibilities. In each episode, we'll explore topics that inspire you to be yourself, live your truth, and make lasting friendships. In this episode, I have an interview for you, and it has been an entire year since this interview has been recorded because the podcast was on hiatus. But that really doesn't matter because the information is still valuable today. John and I talk about the emotional eating that developed when he faced a terrible trauma in his late 20s. He talks about how he used emotional eating to cope with that incident and what he did, what steps he did to break out of that. I hope you enjoy. I have an interview for you, Coach John. Now, Coach John, I I don't tell anyone else's story, so I'm going to allow him to speak for himself. Coach John, tell us who you are, what you do, and, and why you're here. Yeah, man. Thank you for having me. And it was really interesting that we connected because I was on another podcast and someone reached out and said, you have to talk to Lee. <laughs> and I said, okay, tell me how to reach him. And and I did. And, you know, just, just before we started recording here, we just had a bit of a conversation. It's clear that there's a really, really cool connection because I think there's probably a lot of very similar things that we that we do in the work that we do. So it's really, it's a genuine pleasure to be here. For sure, man. If, you, so. if you'd like, I was gonna say, if you'd like, what I could do is I could share a little bit of a backstory because you haven't actually heard a lot of my backstory yet either <laughs> and say, here's, here's how we got here. Cause I think it might lay the groundwork for some really interesting discussion around behavior patterns and, and as you call it patterns of possibility. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Tell us about who you are. I'm interested. Yeah. So um, I say that I've had like a pretty varied background. Uh, I was a nanotechnology researcher um, at University of Victoria. So I studied chemistry and marketing psychology. I left that and got into the Navy, became an engineer. Um, I've been a four-time entrepreneur with two failed businesses, and I've also spent uh, a number of years traveling. So I've been a globetrotting English teacher as well. And, you know, it was actually during my my travels around the world that I went from from being athletic to becoming morbidly obese. And it was really as a, a result of a trauma that I suffered uh, over 10 years ago when I was living in South Africa. So that began, you know, it's almost like this began my journey into adulthood, even though this happened when I was 29. Because maybe prior to that, uh, life hadn't been particularly challenging for me. Um, it had always been a, a kind of exciting and a fun adventure. But after going through trauma, man, everything everything shifted. So what I would say is prior to going through this experience, I would have thought anyone, for example, anyone who was overweight or um, 
obese, was like lazy or undisciplined. But when I when I went through an experience that that absolutely rocked my world, both physically and and, and metaphorically, I I had to wade into this world of like body image and weight loss and how did I go from identifying as an athlete and someone who was in good shape to come to terms with the fact that I'd become morbidly obese because I'd used food as a way to cope with my trauma. Mm-hmm. And so it it took a lot of struggle, a lot of failed coaching efforts. Um, and it's not really to, that's not to speak down about the coaches I worked with, but it was a wrong fit for where I was before. I finally had a coach who shone a light on really the glaring problem that was staring back at me. You see, I'd tried many, many different diets to sort of rectify my, my weight issue and my struggles. And he took a step back and said, you know, your issue here really is your relationship to yourself, your relationship to your body. And, you know, because of all of my failed attempts mm-hmm. to lose weight, I'd, I'd actually really become quite angry and spiteful to my body. Like somehow it had betrayed me. Um, and I'd, I'd actually, it was like I was trying to punish it into, into submission. And so when he worked with me to kind of to heal my relationship with myself and kind of by extension of food, it, it created this like seismic paradigm shift where I realized even as a man that I can treat myself with love and compassion, which is a very still probably sounds out of place in our masculine culture, but I could do that and and lose weight and be healthy. It just created this huge shift for me. Well, yeah, definitely. It's uh, always been pain, no pain, no gain. You have to really punch it, really push it. And you know, fears and tears and all that stuff. You have to really just make sure that's uh, (laughs) it's your, you, you are the master of your body and you make it do what you want to do. That's what we've been told and that's what we've been taught. But essentially there's something else happening there that has more of an influence that we don't notice. Yeah. I mean, it was super interesting because I thought I was like, I was trying to control my body and Mm -hmm. what was, what was really missing here, I think was this idea that like, uh, I'm kind of working in partnership with my body. So, you know, I, I obviously believe there's something more to us, our essence of being. I would I would call it a soul that we have that makes us who we are, housed in a body. And, you know, mm-hmm. to try and fight this home for who we are. It's the only, you know, uh, we joke this is the only meat machine that we have. We only get <laughs> we only get this once. And, and uh, so we should really take care of it. And it was just, I think I was trapped in this myth that, like one, like men aren't allowed to feel emotions, that feeling emotions makes you weak, that the only sort of safe masculine emotion was anger. And so I'll tell you what the question was that really kind of rocked my world. He said, John, if you make a list of all the things you love and value, how far down that list do I go before I see your name? Wow. Yeah. Wow. Wow. That, I say that question changed my life. And it's so interesting to think that one question can do that. One well-placed, well-timed question changed my life because he rocked like my entire perspective on being a man and being masculine by asking that question. Yeah. You know, I would say that in reference to that, the spirit and being the house of the spirit, like holding the, having your meat suit right there. And it's yeah. all of a sudden your, your spirit is looking at yourself and thinking this kind of looking at it a different point of view like oh what really is happening here you know what is it and you start to question everything about your body and what you're doing and so man those questions are so powerful well-timed well-placed and it's all about you not really i think maybe you came up with this conclusion i don't know this is a thought that i'm going towards it's like you're not in control of your body but you're in harmony with it essentially. Yeah. 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 That, that, that's it is to, because again, I think there was this idea we could look at how we were raised and say like, that's it. We control our body. We make our body do it. But that's really like a very ego based mm-hmm. approach to life. Yeah. And so then my ego was looking at how my body had become obese and going, you are less than you're a failure. You're a loser. You're weak. And how how can anyone ever flourish? Like I'm I'm a recent dad. I've got a I've got a young son. He's seven months old. Congratulations. Thank you. And I look at him and I go like this: This son is going to know masculine affection. 
He is going to know that I love him with all of my heart and I will not withhold that from him. He will know what healthy masculine affection looks like. Uh, because, mm-hmm. and as, you know, like my parents are wonderful. I love them. They, they did a wonderful job of raising me. But I can definitely see that there was some struggles and, and really it would be connected to their own upbringings where well, yeah, there absolutely. was like, there was just a disconnect where, where like my grandfather was captured as a prisoner of war during World War II. He came back a damaged individual, really didn't know how to show love and affection to his sons. And, you know, my dad really worked hard to break that pattern and much credit to him, you know, but it's still, it's like this, it it takes more than one generation really to kind of break through. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And then like, you know, our parents, I think like right now we have like this, the sweet spot of our generation is where I'm an older millennial. So I'm like 38 years old. So I understand a couple of things. Like I, I know what it's like technology before all these computers and smartphones and stuff. I know how life was like before, and I can also yeah. work with technology. That's one of the, that's one of the things about living in within that age group, but also we get a little bit of the emotional intelligence that comes there. We get space to breathe because our parents before us had to survive. They were in survival yes. mode. They were work, work, work. The people before them, their grandparents were in even more survival mode. They were like, we're having, most of them were like, well, we're going to have children so that we can have help to survive. Yeah. So (laughs) the idea of having love and affection was making sure that you had food. Yes. And you weren't kidnapped or you were part (laughs) of this family that you were close to. I mean, that was the idea. And now we get a little bit of breathing room. We get a little bit of, all right, we have house. Now we can... We have food. We can bring food into the house without a problem. Now let's really take care of that one thing that we thought we needed to neglect to survive. We really now know that our emotional health is more important. It's so much more important than it is than it used to be. We have an opportunity to take care of it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think just the idea that we not only do we like, are we healthier, but we, we like genuinely flourish, like our physical health, the health of our body, as we are beginning to understand is really closely connected to our emotional health. Yeah. Yeah. You you take someone and make them lonely and their health suffers. You know, you take them away from human connection, their health suffers, but Mm -hmm. you know, so our emotional health and our physical health are very closely connected. and, And really there's an element of that, even like kind of in the work that I do. Absolutely. So then how did you get into um, working though? So I understand that you had some uh, traumatic events happen. You had some really high ups and really high lows, lows, and you went through some experiences. Yeah. And you can share more or Mm -hmm. as much of that as you want or or a few of it or less of that as you want. But um, I wondered how did that affect you in how you like decided that you were going to make a, a change? Well, it might be helpful to lay a bit of groundwork, a bit of backstory to say, how did I get to that place? <clears throat> um, so the traumatic experience was uh, I was nearly beaten to death by four men uh, while living in, in South Africa. It was, and it was connected to my skin color. Um, South Africa is a very troubled nation, has a troubled history. And it wasn't really about me, Jonathan. They didn't know me, but it was connected to, I, I, I say that I was a, a representation of something they felt had historically oppressed them. And so I say that because it helps me to understand why they did what they did and, and almost to like not actually take it personally because after, after going through trauma, like one of the things that sticks out in my head, one of the pictures I can still see, and it doesn't traumatize me anymore, but I remember one of these men, he had my shirt. I was wearing a collared golf shirt and he had that in his hand and him swinging this rock right towards my head and cracking me across the skull with it. And he had a smile on his face. And I remember, so that one stuck with me because it was, here he was, like he had murderous intent and he had a smile on his face. So that one, that one, I think really like, I knew that there was bad people in the world and bad things happened, but this time I was confronted like face to face with it in the most brutal uh, sort of primal way. Yeah. Wow. And Yeah. I have to say right there though, we can take a moment to... Take a breath. That was pretty heavy and uh, appreciate yeah. you sharing that. And I have to point out, though, that my immediate observation is that you wanted to take a moment to understand their point of view with it, even though you were on the opposite side of, of everything. Mm-hmm. You know, 
that it's not about you and you're not that important apparently like <laughs> i say that in a joking and loving right, way for yeah. sure but Absolutely. people are motivated by their they have their own motivations mm-hmm. and that, i think that's just remarkable that took some work i'm sure to to have that yes. happen it wasn't something that happened in the moment like oh i get it and not quite <laughs> no 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 in, in the moment i was just trying to stay alive i was trying to fight them off and stay alive <laughs> of um. course <laughs> but, but it's the idea of recognizing that you know, it wasn't about you. It was a representation of something that you just happened to look like for them. You were just a thing for them. And it wasn't about you being a bad person or, or anything like that. And I just, I really appreciate you pointing at out that it's important to be able to see that person's point of view. Amazing. Yeah. And and what I say is so, cause um, in the beginning after the incident, of course, there was a lot of anger and rage Mm -hmm. and, a, a really strong desire for vengeance because it felt really unjust. Of course I took, I mean, I obviously took some offense to it. You know, why did you do this to <laughs> <Why>? me? <Yeah. laughs> why did you ever take offense to that? <laughs> yeah. And, and, and I will say to anybody listening, like it sounds like I'm talking lightly about it and I can, because I've done the work and I've, I've come to the place of compassion and gratitude for what happened to me, but I don't want anyone to, to misunderstand or think that somehow that, that I'm, I'm playing lightly with this because these are these are incredibly deep and heavy experiences to go through. But there came a point where I got tired of being angry. Uh, it just I just was tired of being angry. These these thoughts of rage and and vengeance and violence coming into my head. There's always a part of my brain that says this is not you. This is not who you are. And so it almost felt like these thoughts were very intrusive, and they were unwanted visitors. But in the same token, like when you feel constantly under under duress. So living in South Africa, it, it, everybody lives under duress, regardless of skin color, actually. It's a very, you can almost cut the tension with a knife. Like everyone's always a little bit on edge and looking around because there's a history of violence there. Well, at a certain point in time, you got one or two choices. You either leave um, or you, this can kind of swallow you up. And I made the decision, we, my wife and I made the decision to leave South Africa because we had the option of doing that. Um, then kind of started the process of psychologically decompressing, processing what happened. And ultimately, I came to this place where I decided that I wanted to forgive these men for what they did. And that that was the f- first part of me beginning to set myself free from the trauma of the experience. So, it, I, and I want to say like forgiveness mm-hmm. is not... Forgiveness was not about absolving them. It wasn't, but it was about me letting go of any desire for vengeance or punishment or revenge and setting myself free so that when I thought about it, I no longer felt anger. Like basically my soul soul wasn't being poisoned by thoughts of anger and and murder and violence and things like that in, in retribution. And so I could live my life more freely again. Yes, absolutely. I'm over here just nodding away like, yes, this is <laughs> this is it. This is it. This will uh, allow you. That's the work. That is the work that yeah. that it really helped you get through it. And I appreciate you pointing it out. It's not easy. It's not something that you just kind of flip the switch on. There's a, a lot yeah. of things, a lot of components, time and effort, energy you put into it as well. Maybe maybe it'd be helpful to to kind of because I, I started to reflect on this and try to understand, because I think I did the process a little bit w- without a, a lot of self-awareness in the beginning. I just knew that I wanted to forgive them. And so some people might ask, well, how how do you forgive someone who would probably do the same thing again if they saw me again? And I it started with, I had to ask the question, what must have happened in their life that got them to the place where they thought this was an appropriate and even desirable course of action? Because I don't believe we're born like angry, violent, racist people. I, I don't like, and right. call me naive, right. but I don't believe that's a part of our human condition. We start out, we will recognize differences in, in between each other, of course, but so something must have happened to them. And so in thinking about that and, and, you know, the simple phrase hurt people, hurt people. Mm-hmm. So I said, I wonder what must have happened to these people that brought them to this place. And I don't know what it is, but every time I would think about the incident and the anger would start to come up in me, I would counter it with a sense of compassion. I would, I would say, let me take one step back and say, what happened to them? 
what got them here. And by kind of going through this process over and over again, piece by piece, bit by bit, the brick wall started to come down. And so that's why I say it was like, yes, I made the decision to forgive, but it didn't mean that that from that day forward, I was at peace. It meant that I began the process of forgiveness. Right. Right. Because it is a process and it is something that you must continue to do because you will have those thoughts. You may have them and continue to have them for many periods of time. And I just think it's remarkable that you make that effort to understand their point of view. That's all I talk about essentially is understanding someone else's point of view. I believe that when you demonstrate that you understand someone, you create a connection and that is what I think is a close, that is what I call love right there when you really understand them as people. And so I think that it just goes along this idea that I have that this forgiveness that you have, you can essentially embody their experience. You know who they are and you essentially become them through their experience. And when you're looking at them, it's like, you understand what happened. It's a forgiveness of yourself, essentially, too, because you you get a little closer to who they are and what yeah. they've been through, and you can understand it. And therefore, I think it would give you a more um, a a different way to look at other people as well, because it'll be easier to understand these little things that people might do to upset you throughout the day, not even really knowing that they might yeah. do that. But little things that might trigger you throughout the day, and you're just at peace with yourself because you know, I understand your experience. I can relate to that. Mm -hmm. And you yeah. you have your sense of peace right there with it. And so hearing you say that and describe it in this way, it really makes a whole lot of sense to me. And um, it's like one of those one of those patterns that I think is worth taking a look at as far as when people say what is forgiveness and forgiveness is I think essentially understanding where they're coming from and, and not harboring hate for them because you understand you can connect to that yeah yeah I, I kind of wonder you know I feel like hatred was poisoning my soul so it mm -hmm. wasn't um and it's not it's not an exact quote but I think you could say or I'm basically bastardizing a quote uh, but holding hatred in your heart towards another person is like drinking poison and trying to hurt them. And I think that that really made it clear for me. Mm -hmm. You mentioned you mentioned one other thing that was kind of interesting, and that was forgiving yourself. And I had to actually forgive myself too in this in this incident because. And people say, "Well, why is that?" Well, you know, because I actually felt a sense of guilt for even having thoughts of anger, violence, retribution, vengeance, and so on. These thoughts were coming into my head. Mm -hmm. I, I'm, I'm ex-military. I, I know how oh. to, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, yeah. I had, I had thoughts in my head about setting traps in the home that we were living in in South Africa and basically baiting people to break in so that I could carry out retribution. Mm, yeah. 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 And that really makes <laughs> yeah. sense. I mean, that, that, for me, in my mind, that is a perfectly logical reaction to what happened based on the skill set that you have and things that you can imagine. But it's like, no, you don't want to do that. No. That's what you come to. Well, the yeah. thought, so the truth is the thought of like hurting another human being like causes hurt in my heart. So mm -hmm. I am by nature an empath, which is really interesting because uh, for a long time, I, I believe that I, I didn't understand that. So I didn't understand, for example, as a child, I would have temper tantrums, these huge like emotional outbursts. And I would, looking back, I would call that like a pressure relief, uh, like a pressure relief valve, essentially. These emotions would build up to this point where finally they had to go somewhere and it came out in the form of a temper tantrum. But I kind of learned to suppress those emotions because I, I suppose I would have learned that it wasn't socially acceptable, you know, in, in society at large to have these kinds of outbursts. But instead of learning how to process the emotions or process them and, and work through them, I learned how to suppress them and hide them. And, you know, I remember early on in my marriage, my wife would kind of tease me a little bit and call me the tin man. <laughs> yeah, it was an astute observation that there's more than meets the eye, but it was being hidden. Hmm. So how, 
I'm so curious about how did uh, how how did that change for you? So, was it that experience that we just described where most of it started to to change? Because you said you started with a uh, not so much uh, awareness, self awareness. Yeah, it, it definitely did. There was there was another challenging part of it though because I did turn to food to also numb and deal with the emotions that felt too big for me in the moment. And, you know, I, I look back and I think if I was to try and say something to myself, like that was eight or nine years younger, I would say, you have the capacity to deal with these emotions, to work through them. You actually, you are strong enough to do this. Mm-hmm. Very, you know, I turned to food where in many cases people would often turn to drugs or to alcohol and, and for me, I turned to food because it was a little more socially acceptable. And, and maybe even I wasn't entirely aware that this is what I was doing. But there, there became a point in time where I was like, this pattern of behavior is hurting me, mm-hmm. where this compulsive eating. And so I managed to heal my relationship with those who'd done me harm. But I still had this really tenuous relationship with myself because now I was like, what have I done to myself? Okay. So then, yeah, you talked about like having to forgive yourself and so we're talking about several different relationships here when it for forgiveness you're you and yourself (laughs) and so how did that i mean is there there's it seems like there would be an order of operation for that how did that work for you that's a a funny way of putting it i love that i'm thinking bed mass you know (laughs) math class (laughs) 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 you know brackets exponents division multiplication addition subtraction (laughs) that that's going back to high school there um yeah. So the first step is actually becoming aware of the behavior pattern, becoming aware that it exists. And for me, you know, my wife tried to, as kindly as possible, point this out to me. And I at first rejected it because I treated this as, I think my ego didn't like it. I was like, you are shining a light on a really painful part of my existence right now. And I don't like that. And yeah. so I would, because I I knew that I was obese and I didn't want to acknowledge it because I used to be an athlete and I had real, I had trouble reconciling who I presently was with who I used to be. Mm-hmm. So I think the next step for me was to grieve and let go of who I used to be and recognize that that person wasn't coming back. Mm, grieving. That's super interesting. Yeah. That's a, I had not thought about um, grieving who you were because we we do spend a lot of time trying to be, to relive our glory days or to be the person we were before, have the life we thought we had before, reminisce and and so forth. And there's a process to actually let that go. It's a type of metaphorical death, actually. And it might sound a little bit extreme to use those terms to someone who's not accustomed to sort of speaking in this way, but I had to, in a sense, put to death this idea of who I used to be and recognize that that person was not coming back. When I finally made peace with that, I think the next step for me was to then acknowledge in the most compassionate way I could, here is where I presently am. And I've done the best with the tools I presently have. And that's so that's really, I'm calling it like, that's the essence of compassion for me. Yes. Yes. That is absolutely amazing. It's like all about what you, what you have in front of you and stopping the shame of thinking that you can be something that wasn't before. It's like, so that's how you started your journey. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and then, so that, that got me to this place where this coach asked me that question. Mm. You know, because I'd a couple months earlier, I'd had to have like this assurance insurance, like health assessment to determine like my physical health and, and risk factors for life and for some additional life insurance. And to have to have a rider put on the policy because I was at higher risk of death earlier because I was obese, had high blood pressure. Um, yeah, <laughs> that was a real wake up call that it's like you were at risk of dying younger, therefore your policy is more expensive. That was kind of a cold slap in the face, um, that something did need to change. And so yeah, when this, absolutely. 
Yeah, they're gonna take away. I was, they're going to take away money from you, like more money from you, like so you'll have a, you won't be able to, you won't be able to enjoy your life anymore because you have as much money as you would if you just, you know, paid a lower yeah. premium price. That was supposed to be a joke, but yeah, all right. <laughs> that's all good. So that was because I've lost over a hundred pounds, and very often the question is, well, how did you do that? And I can appreciate the question because what we're kind of looking for is, can you give me the Google answer? You know, can you give me the simple answer? And I go, well, one, like you really can't replicate what I did because you're in a different set of shoes. But we can, I would, and people ask, well, how long did it take? And I'll say it took six years. Well, why did it take so long? I will say, if I knew then what I know now, it would not take six years. It would take a much shorter period of time. But there's a very like there's a very big difference between like losing weight and transforming yourself. We could tie you to a tree and just feed you bread and water and you're going to lose weight. But if we don't address what's happening in the brain, if we don't address what's happening with your emotions, your mindset, your sense of identity, who you see yourself to be as a person, you're going to keep going back to that. You're going to keep sabotaging yourself to bring yourself back to this old identity because there's a fear of the unknown. So change kind of involves two unsettling steps. One is stepping away from the familiar. So stepping away from who you know yourself to be as your present identity and becoming a new person. The second half of that equation is stepping into the unknown. In my attempt to become this new person, I don't know what lies ahead and I don't know if I have the skills to handle it. Wow, that was a whole lot of fear, <laughs> like scary stuff. It's on the other side of it. That, but um, no, I mean, uh, that's completely understood. I understand that completely. I mean, absolutely what you're saying is much deeper than what we've been able to see before. It's all about you being, not breaking old habits, but becoming a new person, more looking like, who am I going to embody and be rather than the finding things that didn't work before kind of leaning in towards something instead of running away from the thing. Yeah. Something like that. So change is uncomfortable. Let's, mm -hmm. we'll, we'll just acknowledge that. Uh, so we have this dynamic tension that we experience in life. So we have a primal nervous system that wants to keep us safe and it wants to keep us safe by keeping us comfortable, warm, fed, and avoiding pain. So there's this primal urge. Now, within us though, we have a soul that is seeking growth and development and connection and transformation. And so we experience this sort of tension between these two forces pulling against each other. Do I wanna stay comfortable and feel safe? Or do I want to realize sort of the actualization of my, my potential by, by being willing to go through this transformation? And I'll say it's a lot easier to do when you have somebody by your side. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And definitely someone to help you with a voice in uh, your your head, like just tell you, continue, yeah. keep going, keep going. Because, you know, when you're, for, well, let's say you're just programmed to never done this before. And you would, and if it gets uncomfortable and you get to that point where you're between those two poles and you're like, oh, it's getting difficult. Is it worth it? Maybe I just want to sit back down. Having yeah. someone push you a little more or tell you, remind you, this is what you wanted. Don't you still yeah. want this? This is what you want and I can help you get to it. And so that's what you do as a coach, right? Yeah. There's another, no, there's another part to that. So let, you get into this process and you go, this feels really uncomfortable. Am I doing this right Mm, yeah <laughs> like really in the simplest sense is it supposed to be like this because we've been sold a comforting lie and that is that transformation should be fast and easy and the truth yeah. is it takes time and it's going to challenge you that's what produces growth but this is why there's still basically a market out there selling people quick fixes because there's an element of us that we, we like the comforting lie that there, there's a fast and easy and painless way to grow and create change in our life when in truth, it's actually really difficult. And I think there's kind of another element to this. So if we look biologically speaking, human beings, if we make ourselves, like when we go into the process of transformation, we become vulnerable because we're stepping away from the security of the known 
And our, our primal brain goes, I don't like that. I feel unsafe. If we do this alone, we're very likely to retreat and self-sabotage back into the familiarity of our old self. But when we are connected to another human being who is a source of, in a sense, strength and protection, even though you might not see it like that, it is now safe to become vulnerable and go through this process of change because someone is there with you, protecting you and guiding you. And that's that's why the coaching process is so powerful. I have to, I'm taken aback by that. And I really feel the spirit of it as, as something that is just genuinely wholesome. And that's why we're so wired for this connection is because the, together we can do a lot more than just by ourselves. And it's specifically because we're wired to feel protected in these moments where we need to grow and feel vulnerable, we can feel safe doing that and, and therefore yeah. connect and move further faster. The, the next really cool component of this is what I call wrestling with your demons in the light. So, <laughs> okay. In the process of trying to create change and transformation, like I say that awareness is the, the first step to change and maybe more importantly, compassionate awareness because you have to become aware of exactly where you're at and what's going to come into the light is your flaws, your failures, your weaknesses, the things that make you human. And it's going to be uncomfortable to see those things. But if you can bring your struggles and wrestle with it in the light, instead of hiding them in the darkness of shame, you can now move through them and put them behind you. Shame, I believe, comes from this good and bad value and getting rid of shame like being able to see all of who you are will allow you to do the work that you need. So then that gives you the ability to hear the words like, all right, you didn't reach your goal. That's okay. You can still try again tomorrow. You can still work hard. It's not the end. You have failed many times before. You just hadn't noticed because it was covered up in shame. But look, you made it to where you are now. It's all very inspiring and I think very connecting connecting things, a new pattern yeah. to recognize and, and create when you're with another person, essentially. Well, what's, what's really powerful is to understand that so much of our behavior takes place at the subconscious or the unconscious level. And this is why I, I use the phrasing that awareness is really the first step to change. We have to bring that pattern of behavior into our conscious awareness where we can then assess it, assess its effects on our life, and if it's a pattern we want to, to break free from. So I have like a little analogy I like to give because people might ask, well, how do I change? How do I change a belief? Because the way that our kind of our powerful primal brain works is it will seek to reinforce our sense of identity about ourselves. So for example, when I was obese, I sort of created this identity of the jolly fat guy. Now my behavior around food was really connected to acting in congruence with being the jolly fat guy. Hey, we got a few extra ribs left over. John, do you want to finish them up? Hey, you know what? There's one more burger patty. You want to eat that? And so people knowing they could kind of get a quick win with my friendship by offering me to clean mm. up whatever was left of the food. So I was acting congruence with this identity of the jolly fat guy. So I, I share that to say, um, when we when we recognize sort of the the identity we've adopted, our, our behaviors kind of start to make sense. And when we find ourselves struggling against change, we go, "Am I am I pulling myself back into this old identity because I'm afraid of letting go of this person?" Because the truth is, there are some elements of the jolly fat guy that were good. It's not like this was entirely. I was leaving behind an entirely bad thing. When we realize that, we go, "Okay, this is why it's going to be hard to leave this behind." There were elements of being the jolly fat guy that were good. I had mm -hmm. social acceptance, social recognition. People liked me because I was fun to be around. I could eat whatever I want kind of without without restriction or things like that. So there were elements mm -hmm. of that that I, I, I was never cold in the winter because I had plenty of insulation, you know, <laughs> things like that. So if we're going to change, we ultimately need what I call an emotionally compelling reason. And so... When we think about change, here's kind of the process I see taking place. So our mind subconsciously looks at where we're at, and then we'll start to visualize when I achieve this change, here is how I will feel ultimately. Not just here's how I'll look, but here's how I will feel 
when I accomplish that change. Now, our brain will start to give us dopamine. That's that neurotransmitter that makes us feel good. It's a pleasure neurotransmitter. That, that surge in dopamine actually gives us the push to get over our first fear of change. I want this more than I want to remain the same. But after a period of time, that dopamine is going to die off. We're going to confuse that with a loss of motivation, but really what it was, that initial surge in dopamine, that excitement over starting in something new was to get us over our fear of change. So now, now that we're past that first part, how do we keep going when our brain's telling us, you know what, it'd be easier to go back. So we need something to pull us or compel us emotionally. And I'll give you an example in my life of what keeps me moving forward. So I'm also an older millennial. I'm 39 and I have a seven month old son. This kid has limbs that don't stop moving. Uh, it, like even in his sleep, he's thrashing around in his crib, <laughs> right? Um, even in the womb, he was doing 120 kicks a minute. Like wow. it was, yeah, my wife had a hard time sleeping because this little man just did not stop moving. So he's not a snuggler. I have to turn him out because if I don't, he's literally trying to twist his way out of my arms to look and see what's happening. So he's got a very active brain, very active limbs. Now I'm 39 going on 40. This kid's going to turn one and then two, and then three, and you wait till he gets those legs under him, right? He is mm -hmm. going to be moving. And I do not want to be on the sideline watching him. I want to be physically active and present in his life. I want to be on the floor playing with him. I want to wrestle with him. I want to run with him. And so when I look at that big bag of chips, for example, and go, oh man, I can just eat that entire thing. I look at my son and I go, I want to be in his life. And I want that more than I want that bag of chips. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. There, there's something out there that is just a little more important than the impulse that you might have right in front of you yeah. that impacts your long-term goal. I like this, um, the emotionally compelling reason. And as a coach, how do you get people to recognize their emotionally compelling reason? Because if they're coming to you and you, you help them with their, their diet, but it's mostly, it's more about what's happening with the relationship with themselves. So yeah. how do you help get that compelling reason? It's, it's a bit of a process. Um, so I give the analogy, like I meet people where they're at. I meet them at the ground floor. So I look at where I'm at in my journey, in my experience, in my expertise and so on. And I could say, maybe that's like being on the 10th floor. If I try to shout at them from the 10th floor and go, it's so great up here. You should come up here. You imagine people at the ground level, there's so much noise. They can't really hear you. They might see you waving your arms, but they can't hear anything you're saying because mm -hmm. I'm not communicating at their level. So I actually have to come back and communicate at the level of the ground floor. Meet them where they're at. Now, once we begin working together and I earn their trust, we can now start to move through the levels or through the next stages. Because again, it feels really vulnerable to speak out loud what you truly want. It's yeah. I I have this picture in my head. I, I like to say that we live in a cage of our own construction. And I, I picture one of those old school, you know, circus cages with like a lion trapped in there. And it's got those big steel bars all around mm -hmm. it. And every one of those steel bars kind of represents this belief about yourself. And it, it, so we've kind of constructed this. Maybe people told us how we should be. And in order to fit in, we accepted that as true. And so now we've built this little cage around ourselves and it actually feels safe to be in this cage. We have all these bars around us protecting us. When we're going to transform, it's like I come to that cage door and I open it and I say, there's a pair of shoes waiting for you. If you'll step out and step into these shoes. Well, if you've been in that cage for many, many years and that's where you feel safe, of course, it feels very daunting to step out of the safety of your cage. That's the safety of your beliefs and your current sense of identity. Mm -hmm. And so this is why people resist. So if I can make them feel safe and say, okay, let's talk about what you really want from your life. Let's actually talk about the reality that you only get one kick at this. You don't get two, you get one. Let's talk about what you really want to do here. And it's like, oh my gosh, this is frightening to actually lift our head out of the sand, to step out of that cage and go, I get one kick at this. But if you can create this space where mm. it feels safe to be vulnerable in that moment, now we can really talk about why we want to do this. Wow. That is remarkable. Yeah. So it's definitely not a quick, easy fix. 
<laughs> it's not right there. Just that is probably the most difficult part is just showing them that this space is absolutely safe and comfortable for you. Take a few steps forward. I can imagine that the transformation that your clients received or is something that they, they stick with. It's not something that just happens for 30 days and they're done. It's something <laughs> no. that, well, you know, they have that emotional um, compelling reason. So they'll continue on and continue on. And I think that's just remarkable. The, the goal when I work with somebody is not really weight loss. Like, yes, it is. So I, I, I like to say that side effects may include weight loss. So people come to me because they want to lose weight, right? And yeah. hey, I get it. And that's actually a good thing because uh, we do have a crisis of obesity and overweight in our society and it is negatively affecting our health very badly. It's costing our healthcare system a lot. So there's this real crisis. But for, for many people, there's no good reason to change it until they get that diagnosis of you're going to die if you don't change this. That's most people's emotionally compelling reason. And mm -hmm. it's it's a tragedy that we get to the place where we get those this news that like, if you don't change this, you're going to die in five years or less. Okay. Well, now that lights a fire because I want to stay alive. That's my emotionally compelling reason. But the truth is weight loss, like I said, is relatively, I want to say simple because it's not necessarily easy, but it's relatively simple to accomplish. But to, to transform yourself in such a way that the weight loss becomes permanent because you are permanently changed. You have a new identity. You become a new, a better, a new and improved version of yourself. You have a new, we reverse engineered your healthy lifestyle. Um, we've adopted these patterns of behavior. We've, we've built these habits into your life. So now this becomes your default, um, basically default operating system. So you're no longer operating on the old identity model where it's like I'm the scared fat person who eats food because I'm too scared. Now you're the confident person who's like, mm -hmm. I love this new life. That's when the, the results stick. So you are definitely a, a coach for emotional health, but also let's say the side effect part, you do know a bit about nutrition and so forth. And so, so that's why some <laughs> of the, do, the side yeah. effects, that's why some of the side effects might include waste loss. Can you tell us a little bit about <laughs> the nutrition part of it? Yeah, of course. Cause some people hear this and go, Oh my gosh, I'm scared of even talking to this guy. Cause he's going to, he's going to look right into my soul. <laughs> I don't like, you know, you know, I'm like, Hey, you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm also just an ordinary dude um, who has like a, a lot of self insight and self awareness, you know, um, I love board games. So I just say that to kind of diffuse it a little bit. Like not every conversation is with my clients is going to be this powerful and heavy, right? Um, but like <laughs> the fundamental behaviors around being healthy are not overly complex. We, we've had it packaged and sold to us in a complex way because the, the world of marketing, we kind of need to repackage and resell it differently every time because our brains like novelty. But the truth is like every diet that comes out that's promising well this is the newer quicker faster better way i'm like our biology is the same essentially we want to get our nutrition on point and that's going to probably involve mm. like eating lots of plant food lots of colorful plant food um in its whole form um lean protein uh quality carbohydrates minimal junk food getting sufficient sleep practicing active stress management not just not just you know, watching Netflix, but actually, you know, breathing exercises to bring your stress levels down um, and, and having deliberate activity practice every single day. These are the, basically the fundamentals. The question is, how do we shape this for you, the individual? And that's part of the, the learning process that we go through. Like my program is called Lifestyle 180 and it's a 180 day program, but it also means like a complete shift in direction for your life. So what I'm going to do with somebody is we're going to we're going to start by making you aware of your behaviors around food because we need a starting point, right? We may not necessarily start. Let's dive into like the deepest desires of your soul. That might be a bit heavy when two people have just met, <laughs> met each other, right? And yeah. so it's like, okay, let's start with becoming more aware of your behaviors around food. Let's then start becoming aware of your triggers, what drives you to eat. So once you start to understand why you eat, then we can start to create that change around that. And then it's like, okay, well, let's incorporate a little bit of activity and deliberate activity into your life. Something that feels doable and manageable. So I talk about this process of setting a CMG or a can't miss goal. And that is a goal that is relatively simple that even on a really difficult day, you can still hit that goal. Because ultimately what we want to do is we want a pattern of behavior. So I could say it could be as simple as go for a five minute walk every day. And someone would go five minute walk, that's not going to do anything. I'm like every single day, if you take that five minute walk, 
what you were doing is you were building a pattern of deliberately and consciously doing an activity for your health every single day. You can always build on that pattern. That's the great part. Mm-hmm. Once you've laid that foundation, you can build on that. Well, we, we do the same with various aspects of your life and your health. Now, the other thing is this. When somebody comes to work with me, this is not me, the guru, they, the dummy. That's not how this works. Mm-hmm. This is, I'm going to empower you. This is a collaborative effort because you are the expert of your own life experience. I'm going to shine a light on some stuff that you didn't pay attention to before, but you are the expert of your life experience. So we're going to work together as a collaborative team of experts to get you to this goal. I need your input. I will not just give you rules to follow. I will start with a principle and you will actively offer your input in shaping this to fit your life. Mm. We need to do it this way because when we're done working together, If all you did was follow my rules, the moment I step out of your life, you collapse. But if I empower you, if I empower you and make you an active participant in this transformation where you are actively shaping it, now it's going to stick. And that's the goal. Wow. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Clearly, I'm passionate about this. <laughs> uh, <laughs> wow, yes, absolutely. I mean, you're definitely an inspiration and I'm sure a lot of people who have listened to this are going to be trying to follow you right now. So can you tell us uh, <laughs> a little bit about where we can can find you and how we can connect with you? Yeah, uh, freedomnutritioncoach.com would be my website. Um, mm. So you can learn a little bit more about the nutrition coaching that I do. Uh, I do run a... I call it a live broadcast podcast called Wellness Unplugged. So um, a couple times a week, I stream on you know Facebook, uh, LinkedIn, YouTube, Twitch, Twitter, um, a live podcast. And it's called Wellness Unplugged because it's like a between the before and after. I want to talk to people about their real stories about trying to create change. So I want to show people that change isn't always pretty. We didn't get to my metaphor of the tunnel of sewage, but maybe that'll be for the next conversation where I explain (laughs) what what transformation really looks like. But you can kind of start putting pieces together just from the title of it. Mm. Um, Those are the things I would say, like, uh, I'm probably most active on Facebook. You could just send me a friend request. Um, My handle is Canadian Nomad. So Canadian O-M-A-D. That's that's where (laughs) you'll find me. Just send me a friend request. Um, I don't bite. Uh, that's where you'll probably catch the live streams, free nutrition coaching on YouTube, uh, free nutrition coaching on LinkedIn. If you want to catch any of the live streams that I do, um, that's where you'll find them. Wow. Well, thank you so much for all that. I am really interested in learning more about your coaching and I really like uh, relate to your practice because it's definitely all about uh, recognizing those patterns and creating new behaviors and how you recognize some of yours and you've seen how you can get some of the best results that you can emotionally and physically and how everything's tied together that way. And I think it's a, a very important and powerful thing that you want to empower your clients with everything that you, you know, so that they can continue and they can grow and they can be well with themselves. It's not yeah. about you retaining no. them. It's about no. you empowering them to be the best that they can possibly be and perhaps lighting out someone else's world too. Yeah. I, I like to say I, I want referral business, not repeat business. <laughs> yeah. I love that. I love that. <laughs> it's, it's, I want to do such a good job working with people. They, they can't help but tell other people about it. That's really what I want to do. Absolutely. You're well on your way. I'm sure. I'm sure. Well, thank you, John, so much. Thank you, coach, for coming on. And we'll talk again soon. You bet. Thank Take you. Care.